If you want to grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20. I think uh, probably most of you know this, that Forbes magazine puts out their top 100 every year. And uh, not like you're reading Forbes magazine, but I just thought I'd bring this to your attention here. What they do is they kind of have a composite score of wealth and fame, and they kind of assign this to all these different individuals. And this year's the 2011 list had a few surprises. I want you to know that you're going to be relieved to hear that Lady Gaga has jumped to first place, okay? I mean, what a name, what a lady. And so uh, Oprah, she was in first place. She got knocked down to number two. Uh, if you're looking for some others, like number four, the band U2 has now actually kind of jumped up to number four spot. Dr. Phil comes in at a respectable spot number 18. If you're looking at, for athletes, this is interesting, Tiger Woods, number five. LeBron James, you know that just icon of humility? He comes in at number 10, okay? And it's really interesting who's on this list, but actually it's far more fascinating who never makes the list. There's never a nurse. There's never a just your Main Street small business guy or someone that works for him. There's never just your common everyday individual who is kind of just walking through life. Uh, there are no stay-at-home moms. There's no pastors of small churches. There are no adults with Down syndrome. There are no waitresses. Because this is for the elite. And there's just something about especially the American culture. But it's, it's actually kind of a worldwide phenomenon. We have got this just craving for celebrity. In fact, we have created a culture of celebrity. It sells millions of magazines, TV shows. I mean, there's people that every single night they are locked on to popularity and who's moving up on the scale and who's moving out. Whether you're reading Sports Illustrated, you're watching stuff on TV. It's all about this culture of celebrity. And the only reason that it's so popular is because people buy it. They're tuned in. I mean, this is a value that is reinforced every single day. And it is something that is internal within us. Our flesh craves the idea of being popular, having influence, being admired, having the ability to say things and people jump. There is something within us that we all want to be recognized and we want to be just one step above another. In fact, we we run evaluations. We look at people like, well, at least I don't look like that. Or, whew, I've got more income than that individual. I'm driving a nicer vehicle or whatever. And we're just always running these comparison games, and it is reinforced in our society. It's interesting. For about three years now, Jesus has been working with his disciples. For 20 chapters, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has this one statement, this command, follow me. And really, it is the antithesis of our society. It is... The anti-celebrity path. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. When our world is beckoning it to follow it, as well as our own flesh, we, we like to be esteemed and valued in the society in which we live. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, it's not about your glory or power. It's about me, and I want you to follow me. Now, Let me just tell you, Jesus has to confront the idols in our hearts. We all have them. There's things that we want to put in place of God, and we crave after them, and we seek them, and we treasure them. Now, no one is going to say, well, let me tell you about my idols. We never say things like that. But let me assure you, they have an alluring power. Remember just a chapter away in Matthew 19, 
There was this rich young ruler and he said, I want eternal life. There's something missing in my life. I'm religious. I got success. I've got money, but I don't have some peace in my soul. I don't have true authentic relationship with God. And Jesus says, you're really you want eternal life. He says, then you need to forsake your idol of wealth and come follow me. I will not be second to anything or anyone else. Did you want eternal life? Come follow me, but you're going to have to leave the idol of wealth behind. And that man's case, he simply couldn't do it. Let me give you another idol that is especially alluring to all of us. Wealth is one. Power is another. It's captivating. And in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus addresses this idol head on. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 through 28, Jesus is going to give the most insightful discussion on what is greatness in God's eyes. He's going to tell us, what does it really look like when you are building on my values? What is what is greatness in God's eyes really look like? And that's what he's going to explain here. Let me assure you, if you miss what he says in these verses you are missing the life that he intends for his people. And for all of you that are involved in spiritual leadership, you're involved in maybe leading a small group, one of our ministries, you are discipling an individual. If you miss this passage, if this isn't a regular part of of truth that you're renewed in, then you're going to lead not in the way that Jesus intended. So what does greatness in God's eyes really look like? Well, let me tell you, first and foremost, it begins by trusting in Christ's resurrected life look at verse 17 jesus he is making his way up to jerusalem jesus is approaching the end of his earthly mission this is his final trek to jerusalem so jesus was about to go up to jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves on the way And he said to them, let me just kind of tell you what's going on here. Jesus has made his way. He's gone from Galilee. He crossed the Jordan River. He's in the land of Perea. And then he is now coming through Jericho. And from Jericho, he's going to Jerusalem. Why in the world would he do that? Well, most Jews always avoided Samaria. They considered them completely anathema. They would believe they were cursed by God. They wanted nothing to do with them because they had mixed Judaism with the pagan rituals. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to avoid even your soil touching our feet. So they oftentimes they would cross the Jordan, go down through Perea, head into Jericho, and then they would travel. Jericho is about a thousand thousand feet below sea level. They would travel to Jerusalem, which is about twenty five hundred feet above sea level. They would make that arduous 14 mile climb and they would go to Jerusalem. That is what Jesus is doing. He is on his way to Passover. And there would literally be thousands and thousands of people making this exact same trek. Don't get the idea that it's just a little band of disciples and, they're disciples and they're just kind of making their way on a little path. This would be like a road packed out with people and Jesus had grown in popularity. Him going to Jerusalem would have been quite the scene. As they're going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves As Jesus' earthly ministry continued for that about three-year period, he continually focused in on his men. He was discipling them, mentoring them, investing in them. He didn't neglect the masses, but he was making his most significant contribution in the lives of his 12. And on the way, he took them aside and he said to them, verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, 
and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and to mock and scourge and crucify him on the third and on the third day he will be raised up. When Jesus had said this, he'd said this before. In fact, twice before, four times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus makes these statements about what's going to happen to him, that they're going to kill him. In fact, remember on the Transfiguration, Mount Transfiguration, Matthew 17, what was Moses and Elijah, what were they discussing with Jesus? They were discussing his departure because this is the pinnacle of history. You see, God wants people, his people, focused on Christ, his cross, his death, his resurrection. Because it is in Christ that we find life. It is in the gospel that we truly experience life in Christ. And he gives them details that he hadn't given them before. He tells them, where I'm going, when we get to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of Judaism, they're going to, as the text says, condemn me to death. You see, the religious leaders couldn't actually put to death a, an individual because they were occupied by Rome and had been for decades. Rome reserved the right for execution. You're going to kill somebody? Rome says, we will do that. You do not have that power. And so what Jesus is telling them, my own people, the very ones who should recognize and see that I am absolutely the fulfillment of all the messianic promises of the Old Testament, they're going to hand me over. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and he says they're going to condemn me to death, and the Gentiles will mock and scourge and crucify. Each time he said these words, mock. What do you mean? The Lord of creation? They're going to mock you? They're going to scourge. Whoa. Their faces would have just just turned blanched white because a scourge was a, was a whip and it had these leather thongs and with it had metal and bone at the end of it. And literally the Romans, before they actually crucified someone, they just totally rip them to pieces and shreds with these whips. When Jesus says they're going to do this to me, they're like, Whoa, what do you, what? And then they said, Jesus said, they will crucify me. They're going to crucify him. Crucifixion was the most demeaning, base, form of torturous execution execution known to man. And the Romans had perfected it. They could keep a guy alive for several days in sheer agony. Stripped him naked, beat him to a pulp, nailed him to a cross. Humiliation for all to see. And Jesus says, this is what's coming for me. But then he also gave them this other detail. And he had mentioned this before, but on the third day he will be raised up. You see, there is going to be a victory, a solid, eternal victory over death. And Jesus says, it's going to be my resurrection. Three days from when they rip me apart and kill me on a tree, I'm going to, be, I'm going to rise again. But friends, greatness in God's eyes is when you and I are focused on Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. All that God has accomplished, is accomplishing, and will accomplishing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, the disciples, they just, they're just trying to put this all together. By the way, Jesus mentioning this again and again. Do you know why he does it? Why does he keep repeating this? Because this is the focus of his people. The focus of the Christian is always Christ. It's not just character values. It's not just trying to stay happy or be nice. It is always Jesus Christ. And the other reason that Jesus keeps telling them is he wants them to know that he is not some sort of mere victim. 
This was divinely intended. He is fulfilling the eternal plan. This is promised, prophesied. Isaiah spoke of this event where he's going to be literally bear our griefs in his body. He's going to be crucified. Jesus says, I am going to fulfill it. I'm telling you before it will happen. You see, Jesus has to die. And you're like, why is it that he had to die? Though? Come on. Why can't he just be a good moral example and just show us how to live? Because you and I are sinners. And God's law says this is the way to live. And not one of us could ever do it. We fail. There's something in our hearts that clamor after idols. We sin. We ignore God. We, we oftentimes live as he doesn't even exist. All of this misses the mark. That's what sin is. And God in his justice has to punish sin. And the wages of sin is death. That is why Christ must take God's full wrath, his just wrath against sin, upon himself. He bore our sins in his body and he actually dies in our place. This is the eternal truth that we never get over. It is the reason why there is glory and worship in heaven. That is why we worship him here, because we recognize we are such great sinners. And Christ has redeemed us and he has saved us. Friends, do you want greatness in God's eyes? It always begins by trusting in the resurrected Christ. Well, you would think that by Jesus making these statements, the disciples would just literally be appalled. They would just be kind of almost at a loss for words, clinging to everything like, Lord, what, what do you want us to do? How should we pray? What, what shall we do if this is truly going to happen as if you're saying? Actually, on the contrary, something radically different happens. In fact, this next scene is one of the more eyebrow-raising events in the Gospels. Far from just yielding brokenness and submission, we find that indeed the disciples have been infected deeply by the culture of celebrity. It was in existence then as it is now. Well, look at what takes place in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Now, here's something that's really interesting. We have the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and, and they, they're coming. But who are they coming with? They're coming with Mama. OK, Salome is her name. Now, this is really interesting. This is a, actually a very great woman. She gets good press in the scripture. She is there at the resurrection when all the excuse me, she's there at the crucifixion when all the apostles are running away and denying him. She's there. She is very likely, if you trace the various references to her, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which means that James and John very likely are Jesus cousins. And she's coming with her two boys and she is going to make this request. And notice what she does. She bows down. This is actually the position of worship. She's not just kind of flighty. Ah, you know, I got this cute little idea that I want to ask you about. No, no, no. She's she literally bows down in front of Jesus. And he said to her, what is it that you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. You see, this woman understands greatness. But friends, if you're going to have greatness, you have to follow in the way of the master. At this point, we've got a significant departure from that. You see, she's making a request. Remember in Matthew 19, Jesus said, 
that I'm going to be sitting on my glorious throne and you also will be sitting when he talks to the 12 will be sitting on your thrones and judging the tribes of Israel. You are going to have positions of greatness and of great influence. He told them that because you follow me. He says you're going to be greatly rewarded in the life to come. There is a kingdom that's going to be on the earth and you're going to have a governing ruling power. Well, all of a sudden that you mean significance, power, greatness. I love it. And they probably talk to mama about this. And here's what they do. They appeal to kinship, relationship, and they actually go and they make this appeal. And they say through mom, because she says it, command, you're the king, make this edict. Say this, that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. The position at the right, that was seen as the position of power, only second only to the king himself. And the one on the left? Is the second position. And she says, grant that my sons may have the top two seats. You see, she and them, they saw power on, uh, like based on status, rank, authority. But that's not greatness in God's eyes. And so Jesus said, what are you even talking about? Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, let me assure you. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Can you drink the cup? When he talks about the cup, he's talking about one's divinely determined destiny. The cup could be a cup of blessing or wrath. A cup could be uh, of joy, but it could be of great tribulation. When Jesus speaks of the cup, his cup, he's talking about the exact same cup that you're going to find here in a few chapters later when he's saying, Lord, if it's all possible, remove this cup from me, this cup of suffering, this cup of destitution, this cup of bearing the wrath, your just wrath against sin in my body. If it at all possible, remove this cup from me and yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus says, can you drink this cup of suffering? And you know that you've got egomania. When you answer like they answer in verse 22, by the the way, he switches to the you plural here. He knows who brought this request. Those two boys, James and John. And look what they said. They said to him, you know what? We are able. What's going on here? He's talking about suffering. He just got done telling them they're going to scourge me, whip me. Are you in for a little of that treatment? Yeah, we're able to do this. Now, it's possible that James and John, let's give them the noble advantage. There were men in Israel's history, like David, for instance, that took on Goliath because Goliath was demeaning and debasing the God of Israel. And David, though he be a young man, said, listen, I don't need armor. Just give me a few stones and I'm going to take this boy on and I will kill him in the name of the Lord. I will defend God's honor. I will fight for him. Perhaps they're thinking, hey, You're going to face a cup of suffering. People are going to come after you. We're going to stand with you. But we do want the top two positions for this. They kind of like there's a reward to this. Perhaps they're they're got that idea. They said we're able to drink that cup. They're speaking without truly letting Jesus words sink in. And they're working from their own motives. Do you see the drive? I want the top two seats. We're bringing mama into this. And he said to them, verse 23, he said, my cup, you shall drink. 
But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Jesus says, my cup of suffering, though you can't suffer for the sins of the world, you can face physical calamity for following me. And he says, I know that you actually will drink of this cup. And indeed that happened. James, the very first apostle to actually die for the faith. You know who it was? James. Acts chapter 12. He's beheaded. And John, John actually never is actually martyred, but he's tortured. He's beaten. He's put on on an island called Patmos where he's sent into exile and he suffered greatly. He says, this cup you can drink. But as far as rewards and who sits where, let me assure you, there are rewards in heaven. But it is the father who passes these out. And he alone reserves the right for places of honor. Now, you can go ahead and ask God anything you want, friends. You can. Why not? Pray without ceasing. Ask God for anything. But God always reserves the right to say no. And if we follow him, we've got to be okay with that. Well, he says, no, you're going to drink this cup. But where you sit, your reward, that's up to the Father. Well, let me assure you, when word got out what happened, how do you think the other ten dealt with this? I mean, think about it. James and John were linked up with who? Peter. They were the top three. Jesus gave the most attention to these three. How do you think Peter? You know, because Peter pretty much had no uh, issues, right, in terms of his own sense of wanting things to go his way, right? Peter was one of the top three. James and John, brothers, they ace him out. And how do you think the other ten? Do you think they're all like, you know, that was really cool of you guys to ask about that? No. This was, if you want to find meltdown, you're going to see it right here. In fact, the church almost gets destroyed before it even gets started because of this event. You want to see how they respond? Verse 24, and hearing this, the ten became, here's a good word for you, indignant with the two brothers. Okay, they were like, ah, a little put off by that. Oh, there they go again. Oh, no. They're like livid mad, man. We're like, we're like after their throats. We're, we're, this is going to cause the division. What, you egomaniacs? Why would they be so upset? Well, they're upset because how they did it. They did it through their mother. They probably thought, well, that's pretty cheap and cowardly. I'm sure they brought that to our attention. They probably were really upset by why they did it. You're trying to gain advantage over us. And then they're probably under, really upset by when they did it. You see, they did it before they did. Oh, you, how do you like being one up? Like, I wish I would have thought of that. Oh, man, we're really upset with you. We're indignant with you. Remember what Jesus kept talking about humility and like you want to be like a child because if you're like a child, you'd be grace in the kingdom of heaven. You're not like that. Not like they were, but of course, you know, they are easy targets at this point. They're livid. They are upset. They are indignant about what's going on. And you see what happened here. This event exposed their prideful hearts. When they did this, it exposed what's inside all of them. And really, it's, it's what's inside with us. We lust after power. And this event just brought this to the surface into the issue. And this could have caused a huge division. Jesus is going to the cross. He just got done telling them he is going to pay for the sins of mankind, his people, and they're fighting over the top spots. They absolutely don't get it. And you want to see what leadership looks like? Look to Jesus. He uses this this complete opportunity for division as an opportunity to teach them of eternal truth. 
Look how Jesus handles this. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. They knew all about this. You see, this is leadership in the ancient world, much like it is today. Leadership was all about power. When they thought of Gentile leadership, they thought of pharaohs and Antiochus Epiphanes and the Herods and the Caesars. They thought of uh, Pilate, whom they had suffered under greatly. I mean, these people were like dominant dictators. They were egomaniacs. They had repressive governments, exploitive taxation. They they would actually re- tyrannical military rule. They saw this. This is how the Gentiles lead. Heavy handed, egomaniac, power, lust. And you even see, not obviously to the same degree, but even in the business world, there are some folks that just can't help themselves to power play themselves through life. You know where else you see this? This is sad. You see it in the church. You see some people and they just get all hyped up on their own power, so to speak, totally ignoring anything that Jesus might have to say on leadership. And it's all about them. You see, you know, it's interesting. You ever wonder why communism is so appealing to some of these third world countries? I'll tell you why. Because when you have had decades, of, yeah, even centuries of oppressive rule over a few folks that just rule it over everybody else, anything sounds better. Communism, well, spread out the wealth. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. I think I'll join the revolution. And so they do. You see, when Jesus makes this statement, they were so all very familiar with that. Even when they picked up a coin, they would read on this, whether it be referring to the Emperor Augustus or later in Tiberius. It says, he who deserves adoration. It was it was all about that. And Jesus says, you know what? That is how it is with the Gentiles, but it is not to be so with you. He says, it is verse 26. It is not this way among you. And this is the consummate statement on greatness in God's eyes. And true leadership. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. You see that? Whoever, whoever would truly want to experience greatness in God's eyes. Nothing wrong with wanting to be great. But it's greatness in God's eyes. He says, whoever, let me tell you how it is. You see, the Greek sophists, they actually had this, um, this thought that a man could never be happy if you have to serve someone. And Jesus uses terminology here that's, that's somewhat revolting. He talks about servants and slaves. He says, if you want to be great, then you will want to become like a servant. Now, a servant, you had some rights, you had some clothes that you could wear and you served at the master's whim, but you kind of had, you were entitled to some particular rights. A slave, on the other hand, a doulos, you were completely the property of the master. And Jesus uses these terms. Do you, do you like the term servant? How do slaves sit? We don't like it. You know what? They didn't like those terms either. Do you know why? They were revolting to them. They, they could handle servant. That was, that word diakonia, that, that was fine. Uh, that was just spoke of a menial laborer. But Jesus infused it with great glory. In fact, that's where we get our word deacon f- uh, from. It's the idea that I'm going to take you as a servant, and this is the position of greatness. When you get beyond you to learn how to serve others, that is greatness in my sight. 
And when he talks about being a slave, it means literally I want to do the will of the master. But in order for you to have a heart that says I'm willing to serve, you've got to get rid of self-promoting, self-glorifying, and self-serving. It is a heart issue. It is an idol issue, and God must eradicate it from your life if you experience greatness in his eyes. You see, greatness in the kingdom is servanthood, and servanthood begins with the heart. You want to be great in God's eyes? It's a heart issue. It's really interesting. Paul, John, Peter, Jude, James. Isn't it interesting that when they identify themselves in their writings, you know how they refer to themselves? As bondservants, as slaves of Christ. Because, friends, when you know whom you serve, there is great joy and freedom to serve God and to serve others. But as long as you got yourself on the throne... It is going to be real difficult. You're going to feel this tension and you're pretty much always going to side with self self preservation. It's all about you. When things don't go your way, it's not to your preferences. You're going to bail because you are truly the king of your life. But Jesus says greatness is when you recognize that the father is and you willingly take a position of service to him. Now, you and I, what Jesus is talking about, this is totally foreign because we all think about it's about intellectual standing. It's about what committees you're on, your academic advantage, your bank balance, how many possessions you've accrued. Jesus says it's really not about any of those things, whether you have them or not. Greatness in my kingdom is when your heart is united with my son and you will willingly serve in my name. Well, Jesus is drawing this to a close here. He's got their full attention He says, what you guys are fighting about is the epitome of the world's value of greatness. I want you to truly understand and to experience greatness. And that means that you have to lay aside yourself. You've got to become like me. Look what he says in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, I want you to look like me. I'm actually going to give you my spirit who will work in you, who will weed out these yearnings for false gods and idols so that you will actually have a heart that will truly desire to be like me and to represent me to the world around you. This is what Jesus is saying is what Paul talked about in Philippians chapter two. Remember, it talks about that Jesus emptied himself and taking the form of a bondservant. Think of it. You know who's great? Christ is Jesus Christ. And he emptied himself by addition, by adding humanity upon himself. And he actually entered into the world and he does so as a servant and as a servant who actually will die in our place. That's what true greatness looks like. And Jesus says, that's what I want for you. You want greatness? Follow my footsteps. Follow in my way. When he says, the Son of Man, verse 28, did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. That verse, 28, might want to put a mark by it. That gives you real key insight as to Jesus' understanding of what's about to take place when he is crucified in Jerusalem. The word ransom is the redemption price of a slave. It's the price you paid to buy back a slave's freedom. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is going to pay the price 
to release us from the sin's power, to release us from sin's uh, presence eventually in our life so that we will know the fullness of life in him. That is why he's going. And he tells them, I'm going to be the ransom. I'm going to be the ransom for many, not for all. And this is the great divide, friends. You see, if you truly trust Christ as the one who's redeemed you for your sins, then you can experience eternal life and forgiveness. But if you reject him, if you say, no, I'm going to do it my own way or I'll think about this at another time, you are not experiencing the ransom. You are still a slave to sin. You cannot but help your flesh. Though you try to, to, to kind of conf- uh, modify your behavior, the reality is that you can't because you need redemption. And what he does is he brings us back to what he's accomplishing in verses 17 through 19. He's going to die in our place. But this is one of the foundational truths of the scripture. We've been bought with a price. We're therefore to glorify God with our bodies. What does that look like? That means that we're willing to serve wherever God might have us. The difficult spot, the place that you don't get the strokes, the hard place. No one recognizes you. It's difficult, a hard relationship, a difficult family matter, a place of business is like, oh, I'm the only Christian here. He says, you follow me. Let me do my work through you. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I'm asking that you will do the same. Well, let me tell you, I'm sure Jesus had their full attention. They were caught just like, whoa. He just totally nailed this hard issue of lust for power, this idol in our life. And he said, listen, this is not to be your way. I want you to go my way. Now, friends, if you're going to be leading well, some of you have tremendous places of influence and, 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 you've, and God has just given you divine favor. Some of you have a lot of resources. Let me tell you that if you're going to leave, lead well, you've got to stay focused on Christ, his death, his resurrection, and you have to follow in the way of the master. You ever, ever heard of a midlife crisis? Supposedly, guys, between the ages of 35 and 50, I'm probably like prime for one right now, right? And they go through this midlife crisis because the idea is that they spend all this time climbing this building and they're on this ladder working away. And they get to the top or they think they get to the top and then they realize, I'm climbing the wrong building. What is this? Friends, that will be your reality if you're building your life on anything but Jesus Christ. Building, are you building a kingdom for yourself? Are you or are you building others up in the kingdom of Christ? You see, many people want success. Jesus wants to move you to significance. How is he going to do that? By you focusing on him and you walking in his way. There's a lot of folks that want to consider themselves spiritual leaders. But spiritual leadership looks like what Jesus is talking about here. You see, greatness in God's eyes is living out of a heart of Christ-centered humility that willingly serves others. You see, it's Christ's presence that becomes our power, and Jesus becomes our pattern. I was doing some reading about Ernest Shackleton. He's the guy that in 1914 led that expedition to go to the South Pole. You guys ever heard about that? They've made a movie about that. You can see it at IMAX. There's books about it. It's pretty fascinating. This happens in 1914. In 1913, there was another guy uh, 
by the name of Wilhelmer Stephenson. He actually uh, went from Canada, and he was going to go north. He was trying to actually get and explore the region around the North Pole. And this, these two expeditions, though they had some noble goals, uh, it's very interesting how different they were. In the case of Stephenson, when he took off, it was all about the goal and never about his men. In his case, his ship got all for, you know, stuck in one of these big ice masses. And, and what happened was it led to just the total mutiny. I mean, different ones went off for hunting. Uh, they were at each other's throats. They were mean-spirited. They were cutthroat individualists. And as a result, 11 of that crew perished. On the other hand, on the, on the Ernest Shackleton, on his ship, the Endurance, they went south. They also encountered huge problems. Their ship got trapped by ice. What they were doing is they were experiencing the same problems, anxiety, stress, no food. They were looking at their own mortality every day. But the reality is that Ernest Shackleton was a leader who put his men before himself. He gave away his mittens, his boots. He took the longest watches. And the result, his men made it where Stephenson's men died. I tell you this because how you lead depends on who you follow. If we're going to lead, like Jesus said, where we are putting another's interest before our own, friends, that is the path of greatness. Whether you're doing it just with small little children or you're leading a business or you've got a particular ministry, greatness in God's eyes is living out of a heart of Christ-centered humility that willingly serves others. And let me assure you, we will take the character of whoever we follow. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing passage. You spell it out with such clarity and great detail of what it really looks like to be great in your eyes. Where we don't come to build our own kingdom, we come simply to serve you. And Father, you know that we're unable to do this in and of ourselves. So we ask for your empowerment. Would you shape our mind, our will, and understanding that this might be the reality of our life? We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.